thank you for praying for us as we were away. Uh, we're glad to be home. And uh, really excited about the ministry there in India. Can't really say um, any bad things about uh, how the ministry is going. Um, and we'll certainly talk more about that in, in the next couple of weeks. But um, what you can be sure of is that the Georges are doing a quality uh, work of ministry. And they are um, uh, trusting that God will provide through your support and uh, primarily prayers. That And uh, they are certainly worthy of, of all of your prayers. So... Um, their services are already over it today, their time, but you know when you think about it on Saturday, it's a good thing to be praying for all of our missionaries. A lot of them are several hours ahead of us, so um, if you wait till Sunday to pray for them in their services, then it's probably a little too late, but um, certainly it's never a bad thing to pray for them. It's not, the, not what I'm saying, but uh, so we'll have more to say about that as we continue, but thank you so much for praying for us and for um, for your encouragement. They were very much encouraged by all the, the gifts that we were able to bring on behalf of you. And uh, we were able to get everything on the list that was there. So that was that was great. And they were sh- surprised by that and thought that they, they owed us some money and all this. But um, we wanted to give that to them as a gift and let them know that we care about them. And, and uh, you can be sure now that they will be praying specifically for you as well uh, because they're much they they understand uh have a better relationship with us as we do with them now and we're going to try to help you to see what their ministry is like over the next several weeks um but but they will be praying for you and they have been praying for you and uh so i think that's one of the great benefits that we get out of a thing like that you know you might be thinking well i didn't get to go over there <coughs> so really what benefit was it to me all i got to do is send a few things and and whatever but but one thing that you can count on is that you now have uh some missionaries praying for you uh as a church and and what what more do we need than for God to be working among us and uh and through the prayers of his people all right well today we want to continue our study on spreading the gospel and uh so let's begin by looking at second Corinthians chapter five. Turn there with me, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And would someone read verse 20? Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, that as it is appealed to us, we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Okay, so Christ is has made us his ambassadors. If, if people are going to know who Christ is and what He's like, it's going to have to come through people that He has chosen to be His ambassadors. That is what, what we are doing. So we're calling people, we're appealing to them on behalf of God to be reconciled to Christ. This comes in the form of a command. We'll talk about this later. Two weeks ago, we started looking at practical ideas and witnessing how do we engage our world in um, in in sharing the gospel, how do we engage them in co- gospel conversation? And we looked at John chapter four and the woman at the well and how Jesus did that. And 
and that's a great place to start, and we want to continue thinking that way. This time we want to look at Paul and how he uh, serves as an example for us of how to share the gospel with people, how to develop relationships with people and, and share the gospel. So uh, let's begin with the word of prayer and uh, ask God's help as we as we do this. Father, thank you uh, that you are calling out worshipers. And you're doing it here in Michigan, here in, in this area, here in our country, and you're doing it around the world. And we pray that you would fill up your church and your churches with people of all the chosen race. And we pray that you do it through us. Lord, increase our passion for the lost and to see them saved. Help us to have a desire like Paul had for their souls to come to Christ. And help us to have a desire like Jesus had when He looked out over Jerusalem and and wished that they would just come to Him. Lord, we want to have that kind of passion. We don't want to simply uh, go through the motions or simply be obedient and, and do it out of duty, although that's uh, not wrong or hypocritical for us to do so. We want to do it because we love You. But, Lord, just increase our passion for lost souls. And we pray that the result would be that, that many more people would come to Christ and would be uh, eternal worshipers of You as we are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a couple of weeks ago, we uh, began by saying that there's an, a, there is a challenge and an opportunity when it comes to practically sharing the gospel with the people that God puts into our lives. And I gave the illustration of the <clears throat> far side cartoon where the man says to the dog, Hey, Ginger, go get my paper, or get, go get my slippers and my paper, Ginger, and thanks, Ginger, that's a good dog. And all the dog hears is blah, 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 Ginger, blah, 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 Ginger, right? <clears throat> and, and that's how our gospel conversations can go sometimes, that the people are hearing the words that we're saying, but they don't understand what they mean. And um, and so we want to be clear with them. That's why we want to uh, try to stay away from cliches when it comes to the gospel, unless we're explaining what those things mean. You know that you need to you need to be saved. That's a uh, you know cliche has kind of a um, pejorative it's kind of a pejorative term. But but really when we use even uh, phrases that are in the scriptures, people can just be lost because they don't understand what those phrases mean. And so we need to make sure that we understand what those phrases mean so we can explain them. And um, and even when we're talking to people, ask them, do you understand what that means? When I say justified, do you know what I'm talking about? Um, the problem of communicating God's timeless truth to our culture is a big one because of the pluralism that's going on, but it's not much different really than than the time of Paul when he was at Athens here in Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. Turn there with me. Acts chapter 17, because this will be the focus of our attention this morning. And our goal is to look at how Paul engaged the world in order that we might better understand how we can engage the world. How are we going to engage the people around us, the culture around us, even though they have this pluralistic mindset that, you know, that's your opinion. I, you know, that's your interpretation. Uh, and, and so how do we do that? And I think the answer to that is is seen here in Acts chapter 17. How does Paul do that? 
Acts chapter 17. So let's read verses 1 through 4. Someone read those verses for us. All right, skip down to verse 16 and someone read verses 16 to 21. Twenty-one, please. And also some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers were conversing with them. Some were saying, "What would this idler, idle babbler, wish to say?" Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. Yes, please. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. All right. So how does Paul engage with non-Christians around him? In, in verses 1 through 4, to whom is Paul speaking? He's speaking primarily Okay. So you see there in verse 2, that as was his custom, he would go into the synagogue and explain the Christ. So when, you, when you're dealing with people who have a religious background, they have some basis upon which to understand God and Christ, you can just start right there. You can start with what God expects of them and, and what Christ has done for them. Okay, now we get to 16, chap, uh, chapter 17, verse 16. We start to see a different group of people. Uh, in verse 17, he was reasoning in the synagogue, kind of a, a recap. But then, verse 18, some of the Epicurean Stoic philosophers were were uh, conversing with him, and and um, and when he talks about God, notice what they say about him at the end of verse 18. He seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities. Why do they say that? Look at the next phrase. Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So these people don't have the same foundation that the others in the synagogue would, the Jews in the synagogue. They understand who God is. They understand what the resurrection's about. They understand that there are some people out there, these Christians, who are following this Jesus. But the, the Stoic, uh, the, these uh, Stoic philosophers and Epicureans did not understand who Jesus was. They thought it was just another strange name that they hadn't heard of. And so... How does he engage him? How, how does Paul engage this non-religious group? 
uh, that we see here beginning in verse 18. Well, let's continue reading. And um, someone read verses 22 to 25. All right, someone else, verses 26 to 31. All right, and then verses 32 to 34. What does that mean? No, someone else. Okay. So, how does Paul beginning in verse 22, how does he engage the non-religious people in the marketplace? These philosophers, they have a lot of wisdom. They sit around talking about things. Uh, verse 21, all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So they like to talk. They like to sit around and talk. But they hadn't heard of the Gospel. So how does Paul engage them, beginning in verse 22, and and uh, I'm looking for specific answers from the text. So, what do you see there? Okay. So, he 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 kind of points out some of their sin. Remember the, the four things that we were talking about? God, man, sin, Christ, and a response. Okay, so that's that second one, man and sin. He's saying, listen, this isn't going to cut it, the superstition. All right, what else? Say that again? Okay, where do you see that? 
verse 22. Yeah, I, I observe that you're very religious in all respects. So they're concerned about deities, okay, small d, in some way, because they they say, you know, verse 18, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities. They're wanting to know more about it. Okay, so he acknowledges that. You have this statue or this idol to the unknown God. Now, he's not saying that's okay for you to do because, uh, just just so that we're clear, because in verse 29, it says, "...being then the children of God, we ought not to think that divine nature is like gold or silver stone or an image formed by the art of man." So, even though you have this idol that says to an unknown God, you know, they've got all these idols that they know about and these gods that they know about and that they want to worship. But then, just in case we missed one, here's another one to the unknown God. And Paul says, Actually, you know, there is an unknown God that you need to know about, but He's not served by by having you make Him into an idol. Okay, so so He recognizes that they're religious, but He also confronts them with their improper thinking. Eric? Yeah, they have the uh, the city, um, the the chief philosophers of the day. It would be like uh, Socrates and those types of Greek philosophers, kind of just sitting around. And their purpose, if you think back to the the, the Greek philosophers, their purpose was to they they wanted to improve their thinking. So the way that they would do that is they would take an idea and and bounce it off of other people. So they would say the idea, what they thought it meant, and then they recognized that as other people talked back to them and kind of found holes in their argument, they would make their argument even better. They would make their premise, their statement even better. And so they would just sit around talking about nothing else than, like verse 21 says, just hearing people say something new. And Paul was one of them. So Paul picks up on their idea of the unknown God, and then he turns it to the true and living God, and he actually uses, do you notice he uses their own poetry to help them to see that that uh, there is a one true and living God. Verse 28, for, uh, he says, uh, let's start at verse 26, and he made from one man every nation mankind to live on the face of the earth. Verse 27, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him. So there, there's the idea of, you know, what do you picture when you picture someone groping for something? Right, a blind person, right? And that's effectively what he's saying. It's like you're you're searching around for all the answers and what you don't recognize is that he's not far from every one of us. And then verse 28, for in him we live and move and exist as even some of your own poets. So he appeals to their poetry and says, for we also all are his children. Okay, so there is a God who is over all. There is one true and living God. And, and you're... Your po- uh, philosophers, your ancestors recognize that in some small sense. Now, with a larger understanding of Scripture, they may not have been able to put the name on him, but we, we have from a larger understanding of Scripture that Romans chapter 1, everyone knows that there is a God. Okay, Even the ones who deny that He exists, 
they know that God exists. And there are a couple of reasons for that because His invisible attributes have been clearly seen through what has been made. General Revelation. And Romans 2, 14 and 15, God has written right and wrong on their heart. They have some general sense of what's right and wrong. And that just doesn't come out of nowhere. It doesn't just magically show up that, you know, we know that murder is wrong. You know, you don't have to train uh, someone to, to, to know that. And that's because God has written it on their heart. So they have some sense of who God is. And Paul was playing on that. He doesn't try to prove God. He doesn't say, you know, let me show you all the reasons why God exists. He, he knows that they know that God exists. And he just wants to show them that they know that. Well, what is the structure of the gospel that he preaches? For when he talks to the Jews, okay, the beginning of the chapter, he tends to go to their expectations or God's expectations of them as people made in His image. And particularly if they're Jews that they are His chosen people and they have certain covenant responsibilities to God. Okay, So that's where He goes when He's talking to Jews. But when He talks to non-religious people, okay, in terms of uh, people who don't have a good, solid uh, understanding of who God is, when He talks to those kinds of people, He goes back to creation. He's saying, listen, He is the One who made you. Verse 24, the God who made the world is also the Lord in heaven of heaven and earth, and He does not dwell in temples made by hands. He's not one of your little fashioned idols. That's not our God. The true and living God lives in heaven and He has created all things. And then He goes on to talk about God's sovereignty over all things and then Jesus and the resurrection. And uh, there is an implied call for response. Notice the result in verses 32 to 34. There are three types of responses. What are they? Verses 32 to 34. What's one response? Okay. Some mocked or began to sneer, laugh. Okay. Where do you see that? Yeah, verse 34. But some men joined. And there's a, there's a second one that we skipped. Okay, verse 32. But others said, we want to hear more. And this is similar to, and I think probably all the responses that we could find. Uh, in our day as well. That some will mock and just completely flat out reject your presentation of the Gospel. Others will say, that's interesting, I want to hear more. And then others will accept. And um, and as I said two weeks ago, really there are, are only two categories, acceptance and rejection. Okay, The two types of rejection are seen here in verse 32. There's an active rejection, the sneering, the mocking, that's ridiculous. I'm not going to follow that. Um, and then there's the passive rejection. I'll hear more. Okay, And I say that's still rejection because if you reject that Christ is uh, of God and is the Messiah, then, then even though you don't, you, know, you, you don't see it that way, you are passively rejecting Him. Alright? Any questions so far on how Paul is engaging the culture? Alright. So, we're thinking about ourselves and in terms of ambassadors of Christ. So what can we learn from Paul and how we engage the world and how do we apply this to our lives? Okay, the big picture. When we're looking at John 4, we're looking at a more of a microscopic view. We're talking with one person with one person, Jesus with the woman at the well. And that's a good model for us to see how to do evangelism. But here, Paul's model, the model we have from him, is a larger picture. It's kind of 
brought out a little bit broader terms. Um, we could say it's a big picture view of, of evangelism. And what I mean there is that he's looking to lead people to Christ and, and to do it in large quantities. Certainly, Christ did this as well, so I'm not trying to disparage any the way that Christ did it. But, but, uh, but, but Paul is actually of the fallen race. Jesus was not. Okay? Jesus was of the human race, but not the fallen race. Paul was of the fallen race, and it, he experienced all the physical, intellectual, and societal difficulties when it came to telling people about Christ. And so we can benefit both from Christ and from Paul. So here's what we want to do. We want to highlight four points about Paul. First, his eternal perspective. I think this is on your handout. Yeah, his eternal perspective that Christians are God's ambassadors and that there's a goal of or a a view of complete conversion and then recognize that evangelism is a part of discipleship. So let's look at the first one. Eternal perspective. Okay, we want to think about Paul's eternal perspective in terms of two big pictures. Big picture number one, Paul's world. Many might think that Paul's world 2,000 years ago was far different than ours. You know, we, we have people in our day who think that the sky is falling and that you know there's never been a time in human history when things have been as bad as they are now. And yet, Paul had all the same sorts of features that I think our current culture has from the spin control that happens in our government. You know, think about who the governor was during the time of Paul. Who, who was the emperor? It was Nero, right? Any spin control happening there with Nero and how he viewed what the Christians were doing, right? So, so you had that sort of thing. You had, um, you had these intellectuals who in his day were mocking the true gospel and and just kind of way out there in their understanding of what the truth is. Um, any sexual immorality going on during the time of Paul, or is that just in our day? Just the worst ever right now. No. He had it in this church, right? First Corinthians? Read through First Corinthians again. And this is a kind of immorality that doesn't even happen among the pagans, he says. You know, that a man has his father's wife. So, uh, in addition to that, is there, was there ever any persecution going on? In the time of Paul, or is that just in our day? Man, these Christians are really suffering today. Okay, And yes, we should be concerned about that, but, but we're not much different than Paul's day. In fact, I think in many ways, Paul's situation was much worse. There were riots in Ephesus over him sharing the gospel. I mean, there were riots almost everywhere he went because he was turning people away from idolatry and away from um, you know the way of the world to the way of Christ. And people didn't want that because it was going to affect their pocketbook, it was going to affect their political position, their power. And uh, you, you think we have problems today. He had problems as well. And so we need to recognize that Paul's pressures that that he faced were very similar to ours and in much case, much in many cases, much more severe. Okay, so his, that means that his responses are going to be helpful for us. And so that leads us to the second big picture and that is his worldview. His worldview. Paul responds to his world out of his worldview. What was it? In one word, it was reconciliation. He wanted to see this conflict resolved by them coming to peace with God. And that their primary enemies were not outside of them in the world somewhere. But their primary enemy was God, as ours was before we came to Christ. That was our greatest problem. That we were 
We were under the wrath of God, even as the rest. And so, Paul sought to bring about reconciliation. That was the central theme of his life, that he, he wanted them to, to be reconciled to God. That was, remember 2 Corinthians 5.20? That we are ambassadors of Christ, therefore making an appeal on behalf of God, be reconciled to God. That's what he says to, to the Corinthians. Okay, so he wanted them to be reconciled to God, but he also recognized that when they became reconciled with God, they would be reconciled with one another. All these conflicts that you're having with people are a result of your vertical problem, that you're not reconciled to God. Okay, so let's think about that uh, quickly. First, his, this vertical reconciliation. Of Paul's primary concern was, his, was their personal relationship with Christ. It didn't matter what gender that they had or what class or you know, how much money they made or the career or the nationality or race. Okay, not to say that Paul just ignored all those things, but he adapted to them in order to win people to him. But, but his priority was, Colossians 4.4, 4, that every time I open my mouth, that I'll be able to make Christ as plain as day to them. Right? I want, I want to make sure that they understand who Christ is. Okay, that's what the Gospel is about. It's not about correcting all the conflicts that we have with our government and all the conflicts that we have with people at work and in our family relationships. Because sometimes what happens when we come to Christ, we actually make greater conflicts. We actually produce greater conflicts. That's why Jesus says you need to hate your father and mother and sister and brother if you're going to be my disciple. You're going to, in some cases, you're going to ostracize yourself from your own family, the people who love you most, because of your commitment to Christ. Okay, But Paul wanted to make that clear to them, that they needed to be reconciled. There's nothing more important and then secondly, horizontally, Paul didn't stop with evangelism. All the relationships for Paul played on the theme of reconciliation. He knew that lack of peace in relationships horizontally was, was something that could be changed by the gospel. In some cases, again, it, it was made worse. But for Paul, he had uh, several hindrances himself to the gospel. And, and so he tried to overcome those. And... I think this is important. Uh, Let's think about it in terms of Paul and the conflicts that he had with other people. Because obviously, Paul as a believer is still going to have conflicts. We as believers are still going to have conflicts with people who don't know Christ. But here's what Paul did. He was willing to move aside some of these obstacles that were keeping him from sharing the Gospel helpfully. And so, here's the question I would ask you. is, is, Is there someone that you owe an apology, you know, you can't really share the gospel with them because you are on you're not on good terms with them because of somehow some way that you've treated them. Paul was willing to 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 overcome these obstacles in order to to make sure that the evangelism was was going to be um, worthwhile. All right, secondly, Christians as ambassadors Okay, so first, this idea of his worldview and his eternal perspective. Turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we'll see this idea again of Christians as ambassadors of God or ambassadors of Christ. Look at chapter 5, verse 11. 
Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men that we are made manifest to God. And I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. And then skip down to verse 16. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know Him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. There's that idea again. Paul's main goal was the ministry of reconciliation. He wanted to see other people reconciled. Verse 19, Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So, how does what we just looked at, Paul's eternal perspective and his desire to see them reconciled relate to the idea of him being an ambassador? Okay, In Paul's day, an ambassador was chosen by the king and he was commissioned by the highest powers of the land and he was entrusted with the message of the king and sent with full honor saying, listen, it's as if I am coming to you myself. That's what the king's saying. I'm sending this man who is my ambassador. It's as if I'm saying this to you myself and so you need to listen to me. And Paul says, that's me. That's how God's sending me. That he reconciled, when he reconciled me to him, he made me a reconciler. Okay, when he came to me with the message of salvation, now he gave it to me and told me to go and be that ambassador. And now you go out with all the full rights of speaking on behalf of God. Isn't that what it says there? Verse 20. Think about these words again. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. Think about that. That when you give the Gospel, it's as if God is speaking Himself. Have you ever been under the preaching of God's Word and, and you felt like God was speaking directly to you? And yet God's voice is not audible in our day, right? It's not audible. It doesn't come through some still, small voice. It comes through someone who is who is just another fallen human being like you, but somehow God is able to speak through them. And that's what He has given you the responsibility and the privilege to be able to do. That you can go to other people and speak as if God is speaking Himself. I think of the um, the prophets in the Old Testament. And the prophets are speaking. It's, sometimes it's hard to know when they're speaking and when God's speaking. Have you ever read through the, the minor or the major prophets and thought that, is this Isaiah speaking or is this God speaking? That's what we want to be when we share the message of Christ. That, that you know They don't know if you're speaking or God's speaking. Because you are speaking on behalf of God. You are His ambassador. And so, if you are His ambassador, then we, I think the next question we should ask is, in what ways can we be better ambassadors? Right? Because we could actually speak on behalf of God 
where God hasn't spoken. Or we can speak on behalf of God in a way that's contrary to God. And yet we're saying, I'm calling you to do this when God never said to do that. So how can we be better ambassadors? Um, There are skills that we saw with the model of Jesus and the woman at the well. Um, But I think it begins with, with understanding the culture in which we live. Getting a basic idea of our own culture. That's why I try to spend some time talking about how our culture is uh, is enmeshed in pluralism and relativism. You need to understand that. You need to understand that they have all these crazy ideas and there's no absolute truth for them. That that they just whatever you think, whatever I think, you know that's good for you. That's not, you know, I I got my own thing that I believe. And and you need to understand, in some ways, what our culture is like if you're going to be able to engage with them. Jesus understood what the Samaritan woman was like. Paul understood what these Athenians were like at the Areopagus. If we want to take people seriously, then we must take them seriously, even if we think that their ideas may seem trivial or unimportant. I mean, this is what is critical for all relationships. You know, if you're going to take someone seriously, you need to listen to them. Okay? You know, we have kind of a general idea of what our culture is, but when we go to individuals, they might have a different idea because they may have come over from another culture or may they have developed a different idea of of things. And so, you need to you need to take some time to listen to them develop relationships instead of always be you know the 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 uh, megaphone uh, be willing to listen and and see if you can help them with some of the questions that they have uh, so the ambassador is a chosen and commissioned representative and we're not just an ambassador of you know the state of Michigan or the go- the governor of Michigan or even of the most powerful ruler in this world. Okay? It's not even that. We are the ambassador of the king of all kings. And he's sending us to say, here is the message of Jesus Christ. And so if we're going to be faithful ambassadors, we ought to know what, who we're going to and what we are saying. Thirdly, uh, a view toward complete conversion. When talk, when Paul talked about people about Jesus. His aim was to be faithful with the aim toward conversion. It wasn't just like an unfeeling, like, here's the Romans road. And hope you, you know, hope you got that. Okay, I got it all out. There, I've done my job. See you later. I've been faithful to the message. No, he's faithful, but at the same time, he has a view of conversion, recognizing, as we've talked about before, that he can't bring about the conversion. You and I can't bring about the conversion. Only the Spirit can. Um, there's no way that, that we can bring it about. So, but, the, but He does have a view towards that. That's why He's willing to work with people. Um, he's willing to accept them and, and, um, and even to accommodate some of, the, some of their own cultural things in order to win them. So what that means is that calling people to Christ is not a license to be manipulative or rude. Okay, we're the ambassador. We know what the king says, and you know you're you're going to hell, type thing. Okay, they they ought to recognize that they're going to hell because if they don't understand that, they're not going to appreciate what Christ did. But but there is a, there is a more sensitive and humble 
and loving way to do that. Okay, just think about how you would want to be told about the gospel or how you were told about the gospel. Okay, it was done in a loving, persistent, careful way for the most part. Um, and so, you know, we could have all the knowledge in the world. We could be able to communicate it very clearly. But if we have not love, we are what? A noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Okay, so so Paul was that way because he wanted to see them genuinely converted. He didn't just see this as some kind of mechanical formula. I input the gospel in an unemotional and robotic type of way, and the output is judgment or you know or blessing for them. No, it was I'm going to pour my life my my life into them. Because I want to see them saved. Fourthly, discipleship. Paul's ministry was rooted in the meaning of the gospel. So for Paul, evangelism and discipleship had a closer link than for many of us today. They were two parts of the same process. Remember, it's interesting that there is no direct command uh, from Christ that says, go and preach the gospel. There is that one in Mark 16. Um, but I, I don't think that, that was part of the original manuscripts. Um, but but if you look at Jesus' commission for us, it is to make not converts but disciples. So that's why I say there, that there is a close connection between evangelism and discipleship. That these two are very closely linked together. Paul said this in First Thessalonians two: "We were gentle among you, like mothers caring for her little children." So it wasn't enough for them just to come to Christ. He wanted to see them. He wanted to see them discipled. He wanted to see them grow. In Christ, He wanted to see them become mature in Christ. Verse, the very next verse, he says, We loved you so much that you were delighted, that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel, but our lives also, because you had become so dear to us. That even after they became believers, that, that he worked closely with them to see them grow. So, if there's a defining characteristic in biblical evangelism, what would it be? Um, it is to tell them about Christ. Okay, Our responsibility of evangelism has not been accomplished if we've talked about all of the uh, situations that are going on in the world and at our job and, and in our home and so on and talked about all the right ways to do all those things. We haven't done evangelism unless we've talked about Christ and what He has done. Okay, they, they need to be pointed from God to Christ. That God is the one who is overall. He is the creator, the sustainer. He is the, the one who will judge. Actually, He sent His Son to judge now. He's going to be the, the one who judges. And so, it's not just, okay, we have all these great ideas and we're going to give you all this prosperity and health and all these things. And by the way, Jesus is part of this. And then you keep going on all the benefits. No, Jesus is the center of evangelism. So, how do we how do we uh, begin to share the gospel with those who don't know Christ? Um, I think we need to to finish here. So let me uh, pick up where we left off here last week, and then if we have more time, we'll move on to the next one. But but otherwise, we'll finish with this one next week. All right. Took a little bit more time at the beginning there than I wanted to on some of the foundational things, but but I think it was helpful just to be reminded of 
the importance of our responsibility as ambassadors. And now we want to look next week at, at what what that looks like. What is friendship evangelism or uh, what my pastor used to call relational evangelism look like? How, how can we do that? And what are some pitfalls that we can avoid in order to um, to reach people for the sake of Christ? Any questions or comments? All right. So if you'd like to bring that sheet back next week, you're welcome to. But otherwise, I'll try to have some more for you as well. Um, let's pray. We'll be dismissed. Lord, thank You for Jesus Christ and the great weight of responsibility that we have as Your ambassadors. It's sobering to think that You would use our feeble mouths to to be able to speak on behalf of You because we often feel ill-equipped and unlearned and um, sometimes unmotivated and uh, many times even unavailable. And so we pray for Your grace that we would be equipped and motivated and available to share the Gospel on Your behalf. Lord, there is no other way that a person comes to Christ without hearing because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. Help us to point people to Him and to have a greater desire to see that happen. In Jesus' name, Amen.